Well, this week is our last week for Nehemiah. I know I said something about that last week that was kind of generic, but this is actually the last lesson on Nehemiah. Now, we left off two weeks ago at the end of chapter 10 with the Jews promising to obey all the laws from God's word. They, they vowed before God that they were going to live right. Chapters 11 and 12 talk about repopulating the city in order to protect it and maintain it. And then after that was a great time of celebration and praise and worship and dedication of the walls and the gates. In fact, two separate choirs walked around the walls in opposite directions. They met at the temple, all the while singing and praising God. They were in revival. They were revived by God, and they were excited. And right after that, the people got to work doing what they knew they needed to do for God. The whole community was on fire for what God was doing. It was a very busy month for them, and they vowed they were going to serve the Lord. Now we come to chapter 13. General William Booth from the Salvation Army said to a new group of young officers, he says this, I want you young men to always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. I'm not much of a fire builder, but if, if you've built one, if you have a stove or anything like that, you know that a fire, if you're not playing with it all the time, it'll, it'll just go out. Needs constant attention. So does our spiritual walk with God. How many have found that they are on fire one day for God and the next day, not so much? If we don't give our spiritual life the same constant attention that a fire needs, our spiritual walk would grow out. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 13 with the Jewish folks. Nehemiah's first term as governor, he lasted 12 years. Nehemiah 5.14, we look back, it says, I would like to mention that for the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah. So for 12 years, they were doing all this stuff to serve God. And when that was done, he had to go back to Babylon to report to the king. Remember, the king let him go. And now he had to go back and report to him. Nehemiah 13.6 says, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I returned to the king in the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And so and this trip took about a year for him to complete. By the time he got there, reported, and came back, it was about a year. So chapter 12, they're all worshiping, and they're all praising. They're promising to serve God, to obey God, and do everything they swore to do. They were even studying God's word. And then Nehemiah leaves and he goes back to the king. We come to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. On that same day, as the book of Moses was being read, the people found a statement which said that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not been friendly to the Israelites when they left Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this law was read, all of the mixed ancestry were immediately expelled from the assembly. Now, that's a certain law. We're going to see how that applies in a minute. But no sooner does Nehemiah leave than the people start to intermarry again. Without spiritual leadership and a constant challenge to serve God, our natural inclination is to slowly move away from our promise to serve God. How many found it? The marquee out there, I like it. My wife gave that to me. She gives me all the good stuff. The more you miss church, the less you miss church. How many find that to be true? The more that you're not here, the less that you really miss being here. Because what happens? Our fire tends to go out, and we get comfortable sliding back into our old ways. 
If we're on fire for God, we desperately want to live for him. If we're not diligent in maintaining that fire, we are going to move away as well. Moses was gone from the people for a couple of days, and what they do? They built a calf. Paul established a lot of churches in the New Testament, and after he left it to move on and start more, those churches would find themselves in trouble. And all the letters that he wrote back to the churches were basically correcting the problems that they were having after he left. Paul warned the church leaders in Ephesus in the book of Acts, he says in Acts 20, and now beware, be sure that you feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his blood, over whom the Holy Spirit has anointed you or appointed you as elders. I know full well that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some of you will distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years that I was with you, my constant watch and care over you day and night, and my many tears for you. Our natural inclination after revival or after a great move of God is to let the fire that's in us begin to weaken. Nehemiah returns from his trip to the king and finds the people failing to keep the promises they only made a year ago. They were allowing mixed marriages, which obviously was against the Jewish law, and they were allowing people into the temple who God told them they could not be in the temple. Now, why were mixed marriages not allowed? I think we all know. Because the alien spouses, if they were husband and wife, they would invariably lead the Jewish folks away to serve whatever idols they happen to serve. Now, why weren't certain people allowed in the temple of area? Because the people that God said could not be in there, they were avowed enemies of Israel. Why would you let your enemy into your life, into your spiritual life? Now, we, we as a church, we want everyone to come. Everyone, everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs to find a place in a house of worship to see God. But not everyone who comes in is allowed to dictate what we do. Our doctrine and teachings stay the same. We invite everyone in, but we don't change for the people who come in. When people were coming into the Jewish camp, what they were doing is they were changing what the Israelites were told to do by God. Don't intermarry because they're gonna lead you astray. And sure enough, they did every time. Every time they intermarried, they led them astray. And don't let people into the temple because they're gonna take your temple and turn it into something it's not supposed to be. You can't have people who don't belong being able to make decisions and changes that would be contrary to the mission and vision of what God gives to the Israelites as well as what God gives to his church. As you know, we have constitution and bylaws. And what, what that's supposed to do, that keeps the, the church on track. In other words, the constitution and bylaws like the like U.S. dictate what this church is supposed to do. Regardless of who is standing here, Regardless of who is leading the church, the Constitution says what this church is supposed to do. And if you read it, it says we are supposed to honor God, preach Christ, teach the Bible. That's what we're supposed to do. And no one should be able to change that. And here's why that that was so important for the Israelites in verse 4. It says, before this had happened, before what happened? Before they read these verses in verses 1 through 3. It says, Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. Now, you see what happens when you intermarry. Who was Tobiah? Tobiah was one of the guys 
who was against Israel from the begin with. He marries, or he marries into this family, and now Tobiah is related to the high priest. The enemy is related to the high priest. John Wesley said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire, desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Elishab was a priest who gave up his position as priest because he married an outsider. And the enemy quickly captured his leadership and people started following him. Somebody gave this guy, Eliashib, a position of authority. He had no position of having because he was, a, he was a, now a relative of the enemies of Israel. Now this guy, Eliashib, he allows his relative, Tobiah, who was one of the original antagonists, a room in the temple. Not only is he around the temple, he's allowed to have a room in the temple. Nehemiah 2.10 says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very angry. This was the original guy who was against Nehemiah from the beginning. And Eliashib gives him a place in the temple. And this, the temple was prohibited to people who were not Jews, and especially Ammonites, because they were the enemy. Look at verse 1 again. We read that at the beginning. On that same day as the book of Moses was being read, the people found a statement which said that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. So what do we see here? Slowly the descent away from serving God happens. The fire going out. People are kind of relaxing, getting back into their old ways. What happens when you open the door, a crack for the enemy? And he puts his foot in the door. He, he can't close the door. His goal was to get into every area of your life. Hey, you know, it was only one small room. And it wasn't the whole temple, it was just one area. He got his foot in the door. The enemy puts his foot in the door, and what happens? He takes up residence in your life and he begins to replace what God wants in your life with what he wants in your life. Look at verse five. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, frankincense, temple utensils, and tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the special portion set aside for the priests. Moses had decreed that these offerings belonged to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. You let the enemy into one area of your life He's going to begin to have you get rid of things in your life that you know and he knows draws you closer to God. What happens when people walk away from God? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens in a slow process. The enemy comes in and gets a little foothold in one area of your life. And that one area of your life begins to grow a little bit. And then it becomes two areas of your life. And what happens is now you begin to feel guilty about what you're doing. You know you shouldn't be doing it. And every time you come to church, it makes you realize, you know, I shouldn't be doing this stuff, but I, you still don't get rid of it. So you, you back off and you're attending church. And then every time you read your Bible, it convicts you again. And you know you shouldn't be doing this, but you're still doing it, and so you stop reading your Bible. And every time you pray, now you begin to feel like a hypocrite praying because you know you're doing it. And what happens? You stop praying. 
And so eventually you start walking away, the fire goes out, and now you're sliding back into one area of your life, the, the old area of your life. One compromise will lead to two and will lead to three until you compromise in every area of your life. Now the good news today is we have the Holy Spirit to help us determine that difference and help us change, but we have to listen to that still small voice. How many felt when you read and pray that God's speaking to you like one verse or one sentence or one paragraph is speaking to you? That's the Holy Spirit making that verse come alive to you and now that requires you do something with that. You either listen to it or not. I'm reading through Joshua and Judges now and there's one verse that, that caught me that in the book of Judges, you know, Joshua was all about victory. Judges is all about failure. The first thing that God said in, in Judges is that he left all the other tribes, all the other parasite tribes in there to test Israel. To see that when these things come up, when the, the temptations come up from all these other tribes, what were they going to do? God left them there to test them, to see if they could pass a test. And, they, and obviously they did not. Because why? They allowed one crack. And then it became an open door, and the enemy came in and drew them away. The Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity. It quickens us. It convicts us of what we're doing that we know is wrong, and we have the choice to either say, I'm going to stop it, or you're going to ignore the Holy Spirit, and you're going to keep doing it. How many, I've heard people say this to me that, well, me and God have an agreement. You know, you're doing something wrong, but me and God, we've worked it out. We're okay. God will have to understand. How many have said that or heard that? You know, I know this is wrong, but, you know, God's just going to have to understand. What that leads to is eventually walking away from God. How do we make the change when we think we've gone too far? Because we've all probably been there. Nehemiah 13, 7. When I arrived back in Jerusalem and learned the extent of this evil deed of Eliashib that he had provided Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God, I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings from the room. There's a, uh, I'm not sure who said it. It might have been Billy Graham. He says, we need to love the things God loves and hate the things that God hates. I mean, really hate them. And we find things in our life that we know are wrong. We have to begin to hate what we do. We have to acknowledge that we've allowed those compromises. And then we have to get angry at the enemy for allowing us to get sucked into those compromises. And realize that even though these compromises at the beginning sounded good. How many know the enemy does not tempt you with things that sound bad? <laughs> Everything that you're tempted with sound good at the beginning but his goal is not ever to make your life better what's John 10 10 say the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy every compromise that the enemy puts in your path is meant to destroy you so we have to get angry at those compromises we have to get angry at the things that we've done and we have to get rid of the stuff in our life we know is wrong If that's the case, the only response we have is to instantly get rid of or stop every compromise we've ever made. It's tough sometimes. 
One, per, one commentary calls Nehemiah a man of, of a volcanic temperament who expressed his indignation by taking quick action. How many have ever seen the commercial where the, the girlfriend's throwing all the boyfriend's stuff out the window <laughs> for whatever reason, he cheated on her or whatever, and he's just throwing his stuff out and it's breaking, smashing it. That's exactly what he was doing. He was throwing all his stuff out, everything that Tobiah owned, he was just chucking it out the door. He didn't negotiate with him. He didn't come in and say, you know, I, we made a mistake. It's, you know, we got to stop. No, he instantly took a drastic action and threw that stuff out. At the very moment we realize that our fire is going out or has almost out, we need to take immediate action. Not try to negotiate, not try to, you know, accommodate it or rationalize our choices or give excuses why we're doing it. We need to instantly acknowledge it is wrong and take instant steps to stop it. Nehemiah didn't care about what their excuses were or how he did it or why he did it. The minute he saw that he was in there, he threw him out. Sometimes in our personal lives or even in our church life, when we see the fire of God being snuffed out by compromise, we need to take immediate action. You can't rationalize, you can't negotiate, you need to take immediate action. The minute you start negotiating with sin is the minute you fail. This past year has been hard on everyone. And I think the unintended consequences of last year, or actually I think it might be intended consequences, is that as a, as a church or as Christians, the fire seems to be dimming. There's a, there's a reason that God tells us to gather together. There's a, there's a dynamic that happens together that does not happen when you watch something on TV. I've watched you know, tons of sermons, I've listened to tons of sermons, but it's different when you're actually in a location with other people. There's a reason God says that. And what happens is you may take in a bunch of information and it's good knowledge, but it doesn't really affect your life. It's just more information that you have. It's easy to get discouraged with what's been happening or it's easy to get discouraged when you read the news. And how many have thought, what difference does it make? What difference does my being a Christian make? You know, I think about all the stuff that we see going on and none of it is, is good for Christians, but what, what else are we seeing? We're seeing people coming to know Christ because of it. You know, I, I've been praying that, you know, all this stuff stops and we go back to the way it was, but maybe not. Maybe this is what's happening to allow us that God is testing us. What's out there that's happening that's, you know, detrimental to Christians in general? You know, this new act, this new law that you're trying to pass, all this stuff, everything is designed to punish or hurt Christians in the church. What's our natural reaction to that? We can either accept it or we can start praying and we can start asking God to intercede. And every time Israel was going down the drain and things were going bad for them, what happened? Revival started for them. They asked God to deliver them. They cried out to God, the Bible says, and God heard them and delivered them. Now, the problem with Israel is they weren't actually repenting for their sins. They were just asking God to help them. And God was merciful when he helped them. But I think a lot of times right now what's going on in every Christian's life, we see how good we've had it and how bad it could possibly be now. 
if we repent of what we may or may not have done and we ask God to intercede, God will bring people to himself. God will save people, get people's attention. When that happens, when things are going wrong in the world, what happens in a Christian's life first is fear. We fear what might happen. And what happens, the fear begins to push the fire down. Notice the verse in verse nine. It says, then I demanded that rooms be purified and I brought back the utensils for God's temple, the grain offering and the frankincense. Notice Tobiah had one room, but Nehemiah demanded that all the rooms be purified. We may think that one compromise only affects one area, but in reality, one compromise will affect every area. Christians can't compartmentalize their lives. You can't have one area, you can't have work uh, compartment, you can't have a home compartment and a church compartment. They, They can't be separate. You can't act one way at church and then act a different way at work. You can't expect to live like everybody else at work and not be a Christian at work. You can't compartmentalize. A lot of people try to compartmentalize, well, I can't be a Christian at work because of whatever. You can still be a believer there and you can still have a positive effect on where you work. When you compartmentalize, you're allowing one area to be not godly. You say, well, it's okay over here as long as it doesn't affect every area of my life. But the truth is, it will eventually affect every area of your life. And what happens is when we realize the fire is going out, we have to examine every area and find out wherever we are compromising in and then we need to renew every area every area that we feel is causing us to causing us to stray and the things that cause us to stray may not even be sinful they may be things that are okay but are now having an inordinate attention or attraction to you that is drawing you away from God I've given this example before back in Pittsburgh there was a, a, a TV show on the Christian station called light music this was in the 80s and it was basically contemporary christian music at night on on the christian station and the host was a guy by the name of tom green and his testimony is that he was a rock musician for years and once he got saved god called him to give up his music familiar <laughs> and so for 10 years god told him not to play not, to, not that was playing was bad, guitar is not bad, playing music is not bad, but for him, it was an idol. And he had to give it up for God. There may be things in our life that are fine. They're perfectly not sinful, but they take your attention away from God. That becomes more important to you than God. Are you able to say no to that if God asks you to say no? It may be an area that, again, you've compartmentalized. Maybe it's something you watch on TV or something you read or whatever it might be. Something that's really important to you that you know you shouldn't be doing, but as long as the rest of your life is okay. The Bible says if one area is infected, it always is infected. Anything that causes us to waver in our faith and our trust and allows us to rationalize poor choices, we have to get rid of. 
Now, I've said this before. I think and I believe that God is doing something here in this church. And he may be doing it in other churches. I don't know. But I believe that we are on the cusp of something great. Might be revival. I feel in my life that God has answered prayers in my life specifically for me that get me excited. I've seen God answer prayers in this church. My personal prayers for this church, God's doing something. But if we're not careful, if we allow compromise to come in, or we think we've arrived, what happens? Fire might go out. And I think this is the time to really put the pedal to the metal. That we just keep accelerating and get this fire blazing. And the one way to do that is to make sure that we're trusting God for everything. Now, how do you know if your fire's going out? You may be doing everything right. I was telling the teens today, you can go to church and do everything right and not be a Christian. You can do great things and still not be saved. Nehemiah 13 10 says, <clears throat> I also discovered that the Levites had not been given what was due them. So they and the singers who were, con- who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to-, to work their fields. Immediately I confronted leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? How do you know if your fire's going out? If you feel less dedicated to doing things that you know you want to do, fire begins to suffer. The people here quit bringing in the required offerings. And so what happened? The priests and Levites, their job was to live off of what people gave them. They were not supposed to work because they were supposed to lead the temple and lead the worship. That was their job. And so when people quit bringing in supplies and offerings for them, they had nothing to eat, so they had to go to work. And when they were working, they could no longer do the things that God required them to do. And what happens is everybody suffered for it. There were not priests to do their ministry. There was no leaders to sing and worship. When compromise comes in, we find reasons to not do what we know we should do. What has God told you to do specifically? Personally? Church-wide? What has God called you to do? We find reasons to not be involved in the ministries that we know we were called to do. We quit giving to God, whether it's offering or our time. And what happens when we find reasons to not be involved? Everyone suffers. When you came in this morning, if you were downstairs, you know there's a multitude of workers downstairs doing kids' ministry. What would happen if none of them showed up? You'd have all kids in the sanctuary. And that'd be okay. For me, I don't know if it'd be okay for mom and dad. And what happens? Children won't get anything out of an adult service. The adults will be too busy caring for the kids. They won't get anything out of it. People suffer when others aren't doing what God calls them to do. And what happens is the work of God crawls or stops. 
So God gives everyone an opportunity to recommit. Church of New Beginnings, right? Every day is a new time to, re- to recommit. Every chance, is, every chance to repent and start new. And Nehemiah, as their leader, began that process. In verse 11, he says, Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah, one of the Levites, in charge of the storerooms. And I appointed Hanan, son of Zechor, and grandson of Mataniah, as their assistant. These men had excellent reputation, and it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. Throughout this past year, circumstances forced upon us, I think, the fire is beginning to dim a little bit. Many things have been causing church to be different. And I believe that as our church interaction goes, so does our personal walk. I mentioned before that the process is is slow in, in walking away from God. Once we had legitimate reasons not to fellowship together last year, once we find those reasons legitimate, then we begin to find easier ways to let the fire dim. When Nehemiah left to go back, they now no longer had a lack, they had a lack of getting together to read God's word. Like they did before, they'd have services, they'd read God's word, they'd stand for five or six hours. And now Nehemiah's gone, all that stopped. People were engaged, they were in revival, but once they stopped meeting together, what happened? They slid back into their old ways. And it didn't take too long. What was one of the first things that happened to them? Verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 15 says, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and, be- and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of foods. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. We know the law. We know this is kind of at the end. Nehemiah's at the end. They were, <clears throat> they were Joshua and Judges. They were, did all the bad stuff. Kings and Chronicles, they kept sinning. God sent them into Babylon. Now they're coming back from the punishment in Babylon and they're getting excited for God. They had revival. But now they're starting to go back into their old ways. They're breaking the Sabbath again. Now, how many know that we're not under the Sabbath? Right? And Sunday is not a Christian Sabbath either. The Sabbath was a day specifically given to Jews and the Jewish law. It's not for us. However, the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, represents the resurrection and also represents the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. It's a day that we should use to glorify and honor God. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 
Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. I said at the beginning that there's a dynamic that happens when you are together, different from when you watch something on TV or listen to something. Meeting together allows each other to interact. It allows us and everyone to spur other people on. People get encouraged by something that you may say to them or something that they may say to you encourages you, none of which happens when you're at home. It allows us to apply the love and good deeds that God gives us and allows us to encourage each other and what's the Bible say, especially as the day approaches. Now we're reading all this stuff in the news and we, you know, we keep saying these are the last days. And these are the last days. I mean, these are, nothing has to happen before the rapture prophetically. God is already ready to go. Whether it happens tomorrow or in 100 years, we are in the last days. And our job in these last days is to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, we've been praying for our 21 and 21. Whether these are the last days for the church, we don't know. We don't know when the rapture is going to be. But we do know one thing, that our lives are not infinite. There's a time when our life will be over. And we're in the last days of our lives. So knowing that our time is short, we should do all that we can do to honor God and to allow other people to know what God has done for us. And you know what? When you come to church and God fills you with the spirit and God ministers to you, whether through something that's said or something that someone says to you or blesses you or prays for you, somewhere during the service, what happens is people get, the fire gets stoked again. The fire begins to build. And you know what? Other people see that fire in you. When you walk out of here and you go to work on Monday or Tuesday, do people see something different? Do you act different than everybody else? Is there something about you that draws people to you? When you leave here, we should all be that excited. Not because of me, but because of what God is doing. If we know that God is here and God is doing miracles and God is doing answering prayer, we should be excited about that. And when we go out, we should be able to minister to people that are out there and let people see that what God is doing. And you know what? That's revival. When you are revived personally, and you're excited about what God's doing, that's revival in you personally. And then when other people, each one of us catches that fire, we're now revived as a group. And revival hits the church. And you know what? That's how revival spreads. Uses each one of us. We have the candle lighting service at Christmas. We have one flame. And as we light each candle, you see how the fire spreads from candle to candle to candle until everyone has a little candle that's lit. One person in revival is is light, but 50 people in revival is a floodlight. Can you imagine what God can do in, in just in our community if every one of us really believes that God is working in us and God is stirring us up and God is beginning reviving us? After all of last year, we see where we were, what happened last year, but now we are, forget that. Starting new. And man, we're not going to go back. We're going to keep moving forward. We're going to put our foot on the gas and keep praying because God is already moving and answering prayer. 
And if we let up on that, the fire is going to go out. Now, I'm not a race car driver, but where's, no, Gene's not even here. How many of you, when you come to a curve in a road, you slow down? Not all of you, right? But you know how you navigate that curve better? You put on the gas. That, that allows you to control the car more than just coasting around a corner. When you hit it, the car levels down and you go around a corner. We're hitting a corner. And our job is not to slow down. But our job is to steer into the, into the corner, steer into the and give it gas and continue through. Revival spreads using each one of us having been energized by God, using us in a world to bring people to Christ. We want to, there's a phrase that says we want to end well. We want to end, and when our time is done, we want to make sure that we, have, we end well. That everything we've done up to the point where God takes us home, we have done the best that we can do under God's anointing. Nehemiah closes this with a prayer that God would remember and reward him for his faithfulness. Regardless of what everybody else did around him, he wanted God to say, look, remember, at least I'm faithful. And he was faithful. Regardless of what other people do around you, our job is to be faithful to God. If nobody else is faithful, I'm still going to be faithful. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to come and worship. If nobody else does, I'm still going to do it. Nehemiah said, Lord, I know the people are going crazy now, but I want you to remember that I've been faithful. I've done my best. Whatever they've done, whatever they've chosen to do, they're, they're choosing to do, but I've been faithful. I told the teens this morning about living for Christ. When Noah built the ark, Noah built the ark. You look pretty good for your age, buddy. He preached for 100 years. How many people got saved? His family. That's it. The entire world, for 100 years, he was faithful and nobody listened. But he was faithful. Our job is to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Keep pressing on. Don't get discouraged if no one listens to you. Don't get discouraged if no one's paying attention. But know that God is still working in the background. I can imagine that when that, it started raining, all of a sudden people were knocking on the door. Let me in. Too late. God's not going to close the door on people. But it may take a rain and a flood to get people's attention. And at that moment... Are we going to be in a position where they look at us and say, they have the answer. Noah had the answer the whole time. But it wasn't until things started going bad for them that they realized that he had the answer. When things go bad in our neighbor's life or our family's life or whatever it might be, do we still have the answer to their problem? And we're only going to have it if we are faithful to God. If we let our fire go out, then we're not going to have any answers for anybody because we're going to be the same as they are. Our prayer should be, Lord, find me faithful. And if you're faithful, the rest is up to God. Would you stand as we close this morning?
I'm jipping you out of 20 minutes. Did you bow your heads for a moment? You know, even in a church setting like this, you never know who really is a believer or not. All of you know my testimony. I sat in church for three years, not a Christian. Everyone thought I was until God had to get my attention. So I never assume that everybody in a church has actually has a relationship with Christ. If you're here, maybe you've been attending for years or maybe this is your first time. The Bible says there's no accidents or coincidences in God's economy. You're here because God put you here. God wanted you to hear or experience something in your life that ministering to you. I don't know what that is, but God does. And the reason you're here is so you can be introduced into a relationship with Christ. The Bible says we're all sinners. None of us is righteous. Paul said, no, not one. We've all sinned. We all fall short of what God's expectations are. And the Bible says because we're sinners, the wages of our sin is death, which means we're going to be separated from God for eternity. But it goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. All the sins that we committed are due punishment, are due judgment at some point. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. We know we're sinners, we know we can't make it in, none of us are good. But the Bible says Jesus came and he, he moved you aside and he took your place. And the suffering that he went through, the sacrifice he went through, is actually what we should have went through. And says, and God says, all you have to do is believe that. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that God, ra- that God raised Jesus from the dead after his crucifixion, then you'll be saved. It's more than just believing in your head that Jesus lived. We all, I think everyone believes that Jesus lived. But the difference is, is Jesus God, which the Bible says he is. And if he's God, then he's able to take your punishment away from you. And if you're here, if you never really asked God to forgive you of your sins, you've never really accepted what Christ did on the cross in payment for what you, that you deserve. If you want to be right with God, the Bible says as many as believe those he gave the right to be called children of God. If you want to be a child of God, the Bible says you've got to believe it. And if that's you and you really want what Jesus has, which I can tell you from experience is a blessing, is something that I wouldn't give up for anything. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. Father, thank you. We thank you for stirring the fire within each one of us. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how far we drift to the side, you keep wanting to draw us back. And regardless of what goes on around us, we trust you. And your word says, 
you work all things together for good to those who love you. So Lord, I believe that you're beginning something here. We want to keep the pedal to the metal. We want to keep pressing in. We don't want to slow up. We want to believe that God, you're ready to do something. And you're already doing something. And we want and we believe and we're praying for those folks to come to know you. The people that are on our prayer list, the people that we've placed on that cross up front, the needs that we've had, all these things that we need God to work in, we continue to pray and fast and believe that God, you answer a prayer. Lord, your word says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It means it works. It works. Prayer works. So as we pray and we believe, God, your word says it works, so we are trusting that your word is true, and it is, and that you will do it. Not in the way we want, maybe, or the way we think, or even in our timeline, but your word works. Prayer works. So, Father, we're not going to let up praying. We're not going to let up trusting. We're not going to let up on believing that, God, you are ready to just pour out your blessing upon this church and upon this country. And we believe that a great revival is just just waiting to happen. And, Father, we want to be ready for when it does. So, Lord, I pray you would fill each person here with your spirit, the excitement and the anticipation As we said many times before, we come to church expecting God to do great things. We expect it, not because we deserve it, because your word tells us you do. So that we're expecting great things in this church, we're expecting great things in this country. So Lord, we just keep praying, keep trusting. And Father, the rest is up to you. But Lord, we commit ourselves to that. We commit ourselves, we want to stoke that fire, we just fully commit ourselves to going full blast trusting you. And it's in the name of Jesus we do this. For his sake, for his honor, and for his glory, we do this. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Have a blessed week. Here's another thing. Let me know when you have answered prayer. When you see God working in your life, no matter how small, It's an encouragement to others to hear what God's doing in your life. And it gives us faith to keep praying. So if you see God moving, let me know. We want to share that with everybody else.